hello, hello. Welcome to Unbalanced, where we weigh in on Minnesota's far-right blogosphere. I'm your host, Logan Carroll. This week, we're going to do some fact-checking in a brand-new segment called Fact Check. And in our main story tonight, we're going to check in with a classics professor who I am shocked to learn kind of does the same thing I do and even watches some of the same blogs I do. I want to demonstrate that these sites are inherently untrustworthy. They are garbage. So I'll be fact-checking three claims a week from now on in a segment I like to call Fact Check. Since this is the first time I'm doing it, I want to lay out the rules. I'm going to pick claims that seem questionable to me, but I will stick to the results, whatever they may be. First up, from Intellectual Takeout, the article is called Europe Has Proven Hate Speech Laws Don't Work. The Claim the practical effect of German policy has been the creation of a blueprint for regulating online speech for authoritarian governments in Russia and Vietnam, not a reduction in hatred or political extremism. This article links directly to an article in Foreign Policy called Germany's Online Crackdowns Inspire the World's Dictators. So what this article says is that a German hate speech law was copy and pasted to dictators seeking to limit freedom of speech. And the article does criticize some of the ways that Germany defines hate speech as being too broad. However, the piece isn't about hate speech legislation per se, but about something called intermediary liability being applied to tech companies, especially social media companies. Basically, this means holding social media companies and other tech companies liable for content published on their site, including hate speech. The law in question, the German law, doesn't change their definition of hate speech at all. Here's a quote from the article. The critics of the law who warned that the act might legitimize a model of online censorship that can readily be adapted to serve the ends of authoritarian states have been proved right. Our new research shows that in less than two years, the law has essentially been copy and pasted by governments around the world, most of which do not match Germany's commitment to democracy, the rule of law, and human rights. So my verdict here is false. The intellectual takeout article implies that the entirety of German hate speech law has been adopted by dictators, rather than one single mechanism of enforcement. According to the article that intellectual cites to support their claim, that enforcement model is problematic, not hate speech law. Number two is an op-ed titled, Why I Oppose U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All Plan by Dave Hughes, um, a military veteran who's running for the U.S. House of Representatives. The claim... The Constitution is explicit that anything and everything not enumerated in that document must, not may or should or maybe, must be left to the states and the people to figure out. Our federal government is not authorized to engage in Medicare for all or anything like it. Now here are the facts. Most of my information is taken from a Politico story called Death by a Thousand Lawsuits, the legal battles that could dog Medicare for all. Here's a direct quote from that article. In the 1930s and 40s, the Supreme Court vastly expanded government power under the Spending Clause, allowing the federal government to spend money on almost anything they want and regulate almost any transaction that qualifies as interstate commerce, said Ilya Soman, a libertarian-leaning professor of constitutional law at George Mason University. It's highly unlikely the court is going to overrule that precedent now. 
The verdict? Medicare for all is more a marketing term than a policy at this point, trying to sell an idea. The way the law is written will determine its legality and its constitutionality. To claim that the very concept is unconstitutional lies somewhere between an uneducated opinion and an outright falsehood. The last fact check today comes from Center of the American Experiment, an article titled, Three Things Excel Energy Doesn't Want You to Know About Their Massive Increase in Electricity Prices. Here's the claim. After the price increase, Excel residential customers will pay 29% more for their electricity than the national average, resulting in an additional yearly cost of almost $200. I want to provide some context here. Uh, Center of the American Experiment routinely attacks green energy, especially wind and solar, and have uh, been developing a narrative that Excel's investments in green energy are bad for Minnesotans. This article even concludes with an attack on renewable energy sources. So here are the facts. Now, further in the article, the author takes Excel's proposed rate, the one that'll be in effect three years from now, and compares it to the national average from last year. That's where this 29% difference is. Excel's cost three years from now compared to the national average of a year ago. But even this national rate from last year, it seems kind of low to me. Um, I, can't, I can't say this for sure, because when you click on their citation, it just takes you to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, but, but the link they provide just points to a list of 20 documents, and it's really not clear which one they're working from. Additionally, the Energy Information Administration lists average costs for each state, region, and the nation as a whole in a really handy and easy-to-read form, and it shows a higher national rate than the center claims. Verdict? They appear to have cherry-picked their data, which is something they do very frequently. But absent better citation, I'm just saying it's false. You sat on a swing and the sun sets in a hazy sort of dust. You are the best, don't you know? You got my now, Earlier this year, uh, the Iowa Congressman Steve King was in the news for... Uh, he said something like, when did white nationalism, white supremacy, Western civilization, when did those become dirty no. words? Or, you know, he, he said that and, and he, and that, he promotes the work of neo-Nazis and things. You know, it's a pretty, it's a very good example of someone using the language of Western civilization to cover up a racist political agenda. You know, what's really interesting from the point of view of history is the next thing he said, which was not reported in most of the news, which was he says, why did I, why did I take those classes about the glories of our civilization? You know, it's pretty clear, he doesn't say it, but it's pretty clear that what he's talking about are, are, are history courses talking about, talking about ancient Greece and Rome. I've been reading these sites regularly for more than a year, and one of the ways that I think about them, like one of the things they do, the functions they serve, is to be a kind of ideological bridge between the internet cesspool of racism, sexism, and fascism on one side, and the mainstream, respectable conservatism on the other. They kind of mix all these bitter spices and bake them into something more palatable, but sometimes their work's a little half-baked. Take one recent piece by Alyssa Algren. She's a writer for Alpha News who got a little viral fame in mid-2019 for a piece she wrote called Thoughts from a Hipster Coffee Shop. That article is mostly her just praising capitalism, um, and everyone on the internet was amazed that a young woman could be a conservative. Um, less remarkable is that she's a white financial analyst and a conservative, but maybe that's just the cynic in me. More recently, though, she wrote a piece that could have been a 4chan post, titled The Unmatched Exceptionalism of Western Culture, The Piece Claims 
It is patently impossible to believe in Western values and be a racist, a bigot, xenophobic, or intolerant. However, this article also says things like, It is natural in many African societies for men to have child brides and punish women through rape if they are irritated. It's bad. It steps into the realm of explicit racism, bigotry, xenophobia, and intolerance. But I don't want to focus on the blatant racism aspect of it right now. There's something that's a little bit more interesting here that I think we should talk about. This idea of Western culture, or Western civilization. This same phrase popped up a few weeks back in a weird post on Intellectual Takeout that was about, I mean, the way it framed it was, lefty radicals wanting to sandblast the names of great thinkers off the edifice of a building on the campus of Columbia University. And the piece frames it as a clear attack on Western civilization by radical leftist revisionists. Worst of all, the radicals wanted to replace the names of great Western thinkers like Homer and Cicero with Maya Angelou, Nora Zeal Hurston, and others. In total, seven of the eight names the Western Civ haters wanted to put on the building belonged to Americans. Now, Intellectual Takeout is published by an organization called the Charlemagne Institute, which is run by Devin Foley, formerly of the Center, and Kim, these people aren't coming from Norway, Crockett. The Charlemagne Institute's mission statement says this, We are rooted in the Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman tradition. We work to defend and advance Western civilization. Now clearly this is a big deal to these people, but it also felt like too big of a topic for me to tackle on my own, so I reached out to an expert. Curtis Dozier, I uh, teach Greek and Roman studies at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. And uh, for the last two years, I've been documenting appropriations of Greco-Roman antiquity by hate groups on a website that I call Pharos, doing justice to the classics. Uh, we've been doing it for about two years, um, done about 70 articles, and there's a lot more to come. Thanks for talking to me today, Curtis. To begin with, could you tell me a little bit about Western civilization, Western culture, sort of in the way that it's misused by some of these hate groups? When the, when, the, when the hate groups are writing to each other, they don't necessarily talk about Western civilization because they talk much more explicitly about, you know, racist practices and uh, sometimes genocide and they can advocate slavery and things. But it's a way of sort of, it's a way of kind of gesturing toward a fantasy of a racially pure whiteness, which they believe generated those ideas. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a useful term rhetorically to them because... It's a term accepted in, in the mainstream that can be kind of a coded reference to a racist understanding of history. Uh-huh. And how factually accurate is this idea? It's using a geographical term to cover up what is really meant to be a claim of white civilization. Because it, it, it doesn't refer to things that are only in the West. It refers to things that uh, its users identify as centers of white culture. And then it's also culturally incoherent because people using it tend to claim that they're talking about a European cultural inheritance. But a lot of what we call the European cultural inheritance was, for example, preserved by uh, Arabic writers um, through, the, through the Middle Ages. Now, like, for example, what's, what's an example of Western civilization being used in this sense? One of the, uh, probably the biggest, neo-Nazi website on 
the uh, on the internet. Well, the biggest neo-Nazi uh, web forum on the internet, which is actually a very old website, it goes back to the 90s, called Stormfront. One of their logos is an image of the Parthenon in Athens, with a slogan saying, "Every month is White History Month," and you know the kind of implicit argument of this logo is, well, white people built the Parthenon, this admired accomplishment of architecture, and that's how we know that white people are superior to all other white people. And I promise you, you would find a lot of uh, posts about Western civilization if you looked through those through those web forums. So the ancient world is held up, is often referred to as the origin of all these ideals of Western civilization, but there's a, there's a partialness to that, which I think is what the the self-proclaimed defenders of Western civilization don't want to see. Oh, what do you mean by that partialness? I mean that I mean that the ideals that, for example, the article you sent me wants to associate with Western culture are unequally distributed, even in so-called Western countries, mm-hmm. um, and that was true in antiquity too. There were only only some people got the benefits of the rule of law. Only some people got the benefits of democratic institutions, and in fact, a pretty small number of people got got those benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the ideal that, um, for example, the article you sent me, or many of the people who use the term, want to associate with Western culture, are only partially present in ancient Greece. So we just did an article on Thrones the other day about white supremacist admiration for Athens, which at first seems like, for classical Athens, which at first seems like a kind of paradox because we're so often taught that Athens is the birthplace of democracy and mm-hmm. the origin of scientific inquiry and, you know, philosophical speculation and all these, all these admirable intellectual and political movements. But, the, you know, any specialist can tell you that what we call the democracy of ancient Athens, what they called their democracy, was was an exclusive democracy limited only to uh, a, a, a limited group of men in the city, um, and that it was a very hierarchical hierarchical state. The, the small number of people that had the benefits of those ideals were not representative of ancient Greece more generally. So a lot of the hate groups look with admiration to classical Sparta as a, as a totalitarian ethnostate, and they praise their eugenic practices and recommend that we should emulate those. Or, uh, or ancient Rome, the Roman Empire, you know, it's probably best to call that some kind of a hyper-militarized oligarchy, or even an autocracy uh, under Augustus and the later emperors. Um, we find that admired by racist militia groups. Like we documented one we documented one on Ferris that you know says the time has come for a new Caesar to revive the American spirit. And they basically say democracy is dead and we need we need a totalitarian government. So so it's very it's very kind of easy to say, oh this is such a this is such a wonderful cultural inheritance because when you're benefiting from that cultural inheritance it's uh, it's it's very easy to celebrate it. And the critics of Western civilization, I don't think are actually saying we shouldn't have these ideals, but I think what they're saying is we need to recognize uh, how, in, how imperfectly and unfairly and uh, 
uh, unequally, they have always been distributed. Going right back to the supposed origin of these ideas. Now, there was another article I wanted to talk to you about. This one was posted on a site called Intellectual Takeout that's sort of connected. Did. To... We, did our, we did an article on Ferris about Intellectual Takeout. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you can look that up. <laughs> that sounds much more interesting than what I was going to ask you about. Do you remember what you wrote about them? I, I actually found out about Intellectual Takeout because uh, it showed up on a Latin teacher's Facebook group. Somebody posted an article they wrote called, the title of the article was Learning Greek and Latin Will Be Key to Renewing the West. That was the archaeological takeout article. Our article is called Study of Latin and Greek Promoted by Racists and Homophobes. Um, so it was an article saying, oh, learning Latin and Greek is, is uh, very important for the reestablishment and preservation of Western civilization. And we were just pointing out that that sounds like a nice idea, um, especially if you're a Latin teacher looking for ways to promote your uh, promote your class in an educational landscape where people are skeptical about the value of Latin. But look at the other material that's on this that's on this website, and you'll see that um, this discourse about preserving or or reviving the West is alongside articles minimizing the history of slavery in the United States an article rejecting the idea of structural racism in the United States, an uh, article uh, rejecting the idea, or sorry, an article advocating the, the idea of America as a melting pot, which is a metaphor that's been used to justify the erasure of non-white cultural identities in the U.S., uh, a number of homophobic posts, a number of misogynist posts, um, for example, arguing that it uh, is admirable if a man wants to stay home, stay at home, wife, um, so on. You know, like the, the website is, as you know, full of misogynist, racist, homophobic material. And so, you know, we didn't. There wasn't necessarily anything racist in the article saying that studying Latin and Greek will be the key to the revival of the West, but. What you do find is that very often that is the kind of language used by people who hold these other racist views. Um, and when you think about, you know, what I said at the beginning about Appiah's understanding of the history of that, of that term, Western civilization is a kind of cover for a idea that um, kind of white history is better and more important than other kinds of so we've been talking a lot about like the negative ways that antiquity enters our modern discourse, but this is your field. This is what you study. Is there like, like what do you think are the lessons? So to me, what's, what's useful about the ancient world is not that it provides a source for the ideals that uh, we as human beings may want to strive for in our relations with each other, but it it provides a kind of set of examples of how we have to be, how we always have to be critically aware of the partialness of the application of those ideals and who is being left out when we claim we are enacting those ideals. It, it, it gives a long history to, I guess what I would call the fact that these ideals have been imperfectly, uh, imperfectly achieved. Mm -hmm. And 
what I think you would find is that most of the people saying that Western civilization needs to be valued and defended are the people who have benefited from those ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a sort of problem in the way antiquity, the study of antiquity justifies itself. So often we hold it up as study these subjects because they represent admirable, um, admirable civilizations that we should strive to emulate. But in fact, that argument is very congenial to white supremacists and white nationalists. And the more we use the language of Western civilization, the more congenial it becomes because that's the language they're already using to promote their hateful politics. Okay. Well, Curtis, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. All right. Thanks, Logan. Yeah, I really appreciate your work, and I'll definitely be following your site. Okay. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Curtis Dozier runs Pharos, doing justice to the classics, a platform where classical scholars and the public more broadly can learn about and respond to appropriations of Greco-Roman antiquity by hate groups online. Dozier also has a podcast, The Mirror of Antiquity, where classical scholars talk about how their research informs their understanding of the contemporary world and their own lives. Dozier admitted that there probably wouldn't be much of an overlap between my audience and his, but he did recommend the third episode an interview with a scholar of medieval history on the invention of the idea of Europe in the Renaissance in response to the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople. He says it's relevant because the idea of Western Civ is not a very old idea, but neither is the idea of Europe itself. You can listen to that on Apple Podcasts. As we fade out, I just want to leave you with the read of the week. Now, normally I don't recommend that anyone read these blogs for any reason under any circumstances, Every week I try to find one little diamond in the rough for you. This one is entitled Inoculating Our Children Against Socialism by Jeff Minnick. The piece opens. For the first time in our history, many politicians and candidates label themselves socialists, as if that were a title of honor. Many of their young constituents doubtless find something just and romantic in the idea of socialism. Some believe, too, that socialism would provide them with free education, free medical care, and in some cases, a guaranteed income. To those of us who stand opposed to a government-controlled economy, this thinking seems at times infantile and also dangerous. The bloody history and economic failures of socialism, here I include fascism, and of communism in the 20th century should rebuff the starry-eyed. The meat of this piece is a list of ten books Minnick proposes parents read to their children or have their children read or something as a way to inoculate them against growing into socialists. The list is an odd hodgepodge of genres and authors of every political stripe. It ranges from fables, The Little Red Hen, as well as economic texts such as I, Pencil. The author's political views are just as varied as the genres, ranging from the very conservative Robert Heinlein and Leonard Reed down to the socialist George Orwell, who gets two mentions on the list with Animal Farm in 1984. Thanks this week go out to Dan Carroll, my brother, who provided the music yet again. And also to you, the listener. We'll be back next week, so until then...
Nothing's there